You can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 45. Genesis 45, we'll read verses 1 through 15. This is God's word. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in these land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell with me in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You can turn in the Gospel of Matthew to chapter 9. We come to the last sequence of three miracle episodes in this section of Matthew's Gospel. Um, you can note that the miracles have been escalating, and in this final stretch, um, the Lord does wonders that uh, bring his, people to say, uh, nothing like this has happened before. Um, we've left a discussion of discipleship and um, these miracles will take us into uh, the commissioning of the 12 apostles uh, to go forth and to spread the good news about the Messiah who has come, uh, who opens the eyes of the blind, who makes the deaf hear, and who raises the dead. And 
that's what we hear about today. Matthew 9, verses 18 through 26. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. Father, be pleased to minister to our hearts even now as we hear of your beloved Son, of the King, of his power and of his goodness. Lord, we would be built up in faith, in the knowledge of, of who he is and of what we need, Lord, and of what you willingly give. We would be strengthened in our faith, which takes hold of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his benefits and blessings. We would be deprived of none of them, Lord. For we know that you have willed to do us good. For your word so plainly testifies to that. So help us to receive this testimony even now. Help us Be nurtured and nourished, Lord, in the life which you have caused to spring forth in our hearts. Or grant, O oh Lord, uh, anew or for the first time, uh, that gift of life. For in this, Father, we glimpse your glory. So we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. There's a familiar scene in a number of different movies. I saw it in one particular movie, I won't say which one. But the uh, main character goes to the big city and they do their best to make it there. They have a dream or something that they're chasing and they leave idealistic and excited uh, only to be knocked down, um, only to be disappointed, to fail in some sense, to be betrayed, to be hurt, 
to feel uh, the uh, harsh reality of a cruel world, a world that doesn't yield so easily to one's dreams. And what do they do? What does the character do when they get knocked down? They go home. It's a classic scene, right? It's a young person going back uh, to the place that they know uh, is familiar, that they know is safe, that they know doesn't possess the cruelty, the harshness of what they've just experienced. They go to a place of kindness. It's an encouraging scene. I mean, it's kind of bittersweet because you feel for the character in their defeat. You feel for the heartbreak. We've all been beat. We've all been disappointed. We've all failed. We've all taken it in the neck. We've all felt the reality of our vulnerability. Have you felt it? And you've probably felt a similar impulse. Maybe it's not home, but your heart has scrambled for somewhere you can go that's different. That's not just going to pile on to that vulnerability, to exploit that vulnerability, to mock that failure. Maybe you've run there. Maybe you've taken solace there. Maybe it's been the embrace of a parent, the embrace of a sibling, the embrace of a spouse, the embrace of a friend. But you know something of the encouragement that comes from it. It doesn't fix everything, certainly, but it is a balm. But you're left with the fact that it's not fixed. <laughs> I was struck by that in the movie. You've still got to go back to that. Or you've got to run from that, whatever the case may be. They always go back. <laughs> and so as sweet as it is, there is still a sense in which, well, that's really not enough. As well-meaning and as encouraging as that kindness is, it has no real power to change things, either in you or in those circumstances. Matthew is confronting us here with a string of portraits of the kindness of our king and a string of portraits of the weak and the vulnerable and the desperate individuals whom he welcomes. Not just to pat them on the back and sort of the well-meaning consolations of a fellow human being, but to embrace them as the king who has come to make all things right. And that's what sets him apart. That's what makes him different from us. As well-meaning as we are for others, we see this in the Father. As much good as we might intend to do to others, we have very little, no power to affect it for others. Like a father who would have his daughter live and yet can do nothing about it. But there's one who's not that powerless. There's one who is the king. There's one who is powerful. There's one who can do something. And what's more, there's one who's willing to do something in great goodness and kindness. I think the two things that are important for us to feel in the light of this text is we're just as weak as this man and this woman. We're just as vulnerable as this man and this woman. Our vulnerability shows up in various ways, but we're to see us in them. And it's only when we see us in them that we see him as 
balm. And therein we glimpse something of the unexpected glory of God who extends the sun to those who are weak and vulnerable. So let's consider this morning our weakness, his welcome, and his deliverance. So first, our weakness. We are weak. And that's the first part to appreciate that he is strong. Note their desperation. I think that comes out plainly with the father. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him. Matthew is much briefer in his account of this episode than Mark and Luke. It's like half the length, which is rather striking. But even in the sparer account, you can feel something of this man's desperation. Matthew calls him a ruler. So he's a nobleman. He's one of standing in the community. He's a figure of honor. He's a figure of dignity. But where do we find him? Now notice two things. One, uh, Matthew connects this scene with the scene that has gone before while he was saying these things to them. This is a public scene. It's quite possible that Jesus is still reclining at the table, at the feast that Matthew has thrown for him. So a ruler barges in and makes a scene. A highborn, a man of dignity, a man of respect, barges in, makes a scene, and throws himself at the feet of a poor, wandering teacher. This man is desperate. It's not hard to enter into that desperation. My daughter has just died. Yeah, I get it, as a father. We learn from the other accounts that she's 12 years old. His 12-year-old daughter has just died. I'm somebody who's very sensitive to social expectations, to decorum. I've often wondered what it would take for me to make a scene. What sort of trouble would have to befall me for me to make a scene? You can ask my wife. We try to make our way through the airport, and I'm like, everybody keep quiet. Don't let anybody see us. Just get to where we're going. She's like, you know, you have four kids. <laughs> You're a walking spectacle. <laughs> I'm like, don't make a scene. Don't make a scene. So I've thought to myself, what would lead me to willingly make a scene? I was watching a movie, Cinderella Man. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a bit sentimental, but I think it's a good story. There's a scene where this boxer, Jim Braddock, who's a fighter in the 1930s, a man of strength, a good man, an honorable man is laid low by the Great Depression, and there's a scene where his children have to be shipped out because they can't pay for heat or light. And it breaks him. Proud man that he is, honorable man that he is, he goes to sign up for public relief. And then he goes to all those who are in the boxing world who still have maintained a certain semblance of standing, hat in hand, and he begs. He begs them for the money necessary to turn his heat back on. Why? Because his children have been taken. There's a certain sense in which we delude ourselves into thinking that we're not this vulnerable. We are this vulnerable all the time, beloved. 
It just surfaces for this man. There's a desperation. There's a vulnerability. The woman as well. There's a desperation. There's a vulnerability. She's had the disease for 12 years. It's a disease which has rendered her unclean. It's rendered her on the margins. It's rendered her foul. It's rendered her gross, as we talked about before, in the eyes of everyone. 12 years. That means it's not curable. That means it's not going anywhere. That means she's looking at a life of this. She's desperate. They're not just desperate, they're also weak. What does the man say? A ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. We're invited to contrast him with the centurion. Another nobleman who came seeking Christ's blessing on behalf of one who is dear to him, but who says what? Just say the word and he'll be well. Not this man. This man is weak in his faith. He will be satisfied with nothing less than Christ coming with him and laying hands on his daughter. He's nearly inconsolable. The same thing with the woman. What does the woman say? She has true faith. Make no mistake. She knows that Christ can heal. But she thinks she has to steal this blessing. Whether she's operating with a magical conception of his garments or whether she's so ridden with shame that the thought that even Christ would look upon her in kindness is unthinkable in either sense. She's got a weak faith, doesn't she? Full of imperfection, full of error, full of wrongheadedness. Dare we say it, full of sin. Beloved, this is us. We're to feel our weakness, our vulnerability in these two portraits. As weak and as vulnerable as a man who has just been stripped of that which is most precious to him. As weak and as vulnerable as a woman who's been cast out of society for 12 years and she has absolutely no recourse to stop that which defiles her. If you can't see in this our position of being beset by death without, and death within. I mean, take it as literally as one. Everyone you know and love is going to die, and you're helpless to stop it. You have within you the principle of decay, and nothing can stop it. And then elevate it to the reality of sin. Those who you know and love dead in their trespasses and sin, save a mighty grace extended to them. You yourself carry about within you the seeds of your own moral destruction, bested so frequently in spite of your best efforts. Can you feel? Can you feel something of your weakness in that? If you hear these portraits and you think someone else, you're missing Matthew's point. We're to see these portraits and to think, I am just like they are. And unless there's somewhere I can go, I'm undone. But there's encouragement for that. There's encouragement for that in a number of ways. The first is that we know that our faith is always going to be beset by some weakness. If you're laboring under the conception that you're going to be able to purify your faith such that all sin, all error, all weakness is expelled, you're laboring under a false conception. Our hope is not that we will ever obtain to the absolute purity of faith. Our hope is that even the weakest faith takes hold of a mighty Savior. And that's what we see here. 
Let me press that a little bit further. It's nonsense to think that your faith is righteousness. It can't be. It's so cut with error. It's so cut with imperfection. It's so cut with weakness. Even the best faith, even the strongest faith. Are we called to be strong in faith? Absolutely. But let's not mistake strength of faith for earnestness of welcome. Does that make sense? Let's not mistake strength of faith for the degree to which we're welcome. Does that make sense? I got a few more nods that second time. <laughs> we are not accepted to the degree that our faith is strong. If there is true faith that truly looks upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you can say it as well with you, beloved, because he is mighty to save. And if that's the case, well, then we ought to let our weakness drive us into the arms of Christ. Oftentimes, I think we labor under the conception that somehow we've got to get rid of or take care of this weakness before we go to him. Well, the reality is, is that the weakness, the vulnerability, the desperation is oftentimes the very thing that God would use to drive us to him, beloved. How foolish we are to think that Christ only welcomes the strong. But the feeling, the true feeling, and I hope you've had a true feeling of it. If you haven't, and you're a child, you will, because he loves you. Mm. Let that drive us into the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ, because what do we find? We find him welcoming in kindness, which is the second point. The Lord welcomes the weak in kindness. I can't even imagine how we would do in this situation. No, I can. Anytime you've looked upon someone in their vulnerability asking you for help, your impulse is what? Turn away. Look away. Explain your inaction away. Mark, if that's not the case, come on. I need you to meet me here. That's absolutely what we feel. This is incredible. I mean, this man makes a spectacle. I'm so struck by our Lord's dignity in this. This man throws himself at his feet in a public setting at a feast. And the Lord in great composure and kindness says, yeah, let's go. Yeah. I'll go. I'll go. I'll, I'll take the time. I'll bear the inconvenience. I'll leave the feast. That's a pretty striking dynamic. You ever been at a feast? It's hard to conjure up a reason that would take you away from the feast. <laughs> he willingly leaves the feast to plunge himself into the sorrow, beloved. That scene in the movie, it's so striking. The boxer's there and you feel for him and he's got his hat in his hand. And he tells everybody what's happened, and a little bit of sympathy starts to fill the room, and they give little bits here and there. What they can spare, they give. Jesus goes with him. He gives him himself. He leaves 
the halls of joy to enter into the house of sorrow in and of himself. Isn't that the wonder of the incarnation? I mean, and this is the lesser wonder, make no mistake. He left his father's courts above, so free, so infinite his grace. I mean, that's a mystery, tis mystery all. <laughs> to leave the halls of heaven, to leave the land of unending day, to plunge himself into darkest night, beloved. This is no small testimony to his goodwill towards sinners. If he was willing to leave the realm of unending day to take upon himself our weakness, enter into the realm of sorrow and sin, well, of course he's going to leave the feast. That's why he came. He didn't come to feast. He came to turn sorrow into joy. And to do that, he himself passed through the deepest sorrow. Yet the kindness and the composure that he extends to the man and the kindness to the woman, she would have slipped in and out unnoticed. She would have stolen the gift and went off. You understand why she would have acted that way. It's not hard to imagine. It doesn't take too long to internalize that gross word. It'd be easy to miss, but verse 22, Jesus turned and seeing her, looked at her. There's these moments of incredible intimacy between these weak and helpless sinners and the Lord where he stops, and in that moment, the face of God beholds them, looks at them, and what do they see as the face of God beholds them? Take heart, daughter. Oh, that's so kind. I mean, that just gushes kindness. Take heart, daughter. The face of God speaks to her. He stopped. I mean, again, the crowd is pressing in on him. We learn from the other accounts. It's really interesting that the, the urgency is still there. Like, you've got to come. You're trying to help this little girl you've got to come there's an urgency and yet even in the light of that urgency in the face of this crowd this otherwise nameless woman receives the full gaze of god and receives the word daughter take heart has ever such kindness been <laughs> Can you feel the refreshment that would come from that dawning in our hearts? Especially if you know yourself to be weak, vulnerable, desperate. Is it fair to say that the degree to which you feel your weakness is the degree to which that will be light to you, knowing that he welcomes with that kindness? And the degree to which you don't think you're weak is the degree to which that portrait is unnecessary for you. But Mark the danger of that spot because this is who he is and this is who he says we need him to reveal himself as 
again and again and again in this section are variations on this same theme. Matthew's going to sum up this whole portion of Scripture by verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That sums up this whole section. His compassion upon harassed and helpless sheep. Unless you see yourself as those sheep, this shepherd will be meaningless to you. Man, I hope you feel yourself in that slot. Do you? I don't know, sometimes I can get the sense that the Lord tolerates me only begrudgingly. That more often as I come to him, even in prayer, it's more with a frustrated ear that he looks at me. It's like, again, like you, you, like, you can't get it together. <laughs> I've been bearing with you for this whole time. How kind have I been to you? And let this portrait of kindness overwhelm that. It's not that we come to him expelling weakness. It's that he welcomes us in kindness, beloved. What if we prayed with that understanding of our king burning at our heart? Do you think your prayers would be more frequent? Do you think they would be more earnest? I think they would. Let's take it a little bit further. Are we a household that extends kind welcome to the weak, to those who are a mess? As I reflected upon this, it seems to me that the welcome that we think we have received is the welcome we extend. If you think we've been welcomed because of our strength, you're only going to welcome the strong or those you perceive to be strong. Paul makes that exact same point, I mean, at least indirectly in Romans 15. He morally mandates us, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. How has Christ welcomed you? Has he welcomed you as one who has gotten it all together, or has he welcomed you as a mess and is in great kindness and gentleness leading you forth? Sustaining you, bearing with you, in patience, gentleness, compassion? Or do you think that he deals with others on the basis of those things, but not you? If that's anywhere in your mind, I suspect that you don't deal with others on the basis of those things because the welcome we think we have received is the welcome we extend. So are we a household that welcomes messes? Are we a household that will be inconvenienced for the weak? Paul says welcome the weak, not to quarrel about your preferences. But setting aside the question of what pleases you and devoting yourself to the doing of good and the building up of the weak. That's exactly what he says. 
in Romans 14 and 15. Make no mistake, beloved, we have been welcomed in weakness. The Lord has cloaked you in your nakedness. He has shed his blood, not for the strong, but for those who were enslaved to darkness and had no hope of rescue. This is the welcome we have received. Does the truth of that reflect itself in the welcome we extend to others? It ought to. I pray that it does. But it's not just a welcome, it's also deliverance, which is the final point. The Lord delivers as only he can. I said before that the miracles that he's working are escalating here. Here he confronts death and an incurable disease. Matthew doesn't give us the details that Luke and Mark gives us concerning this woman's suffering at the hand of many physicians, spending all that she had not to get better, but to find herself worse. Matthew makes short work of all of that by simply setting forth the length of 12 years, saying this thing's not going anywhere. The idea of defilement is clearly at play. If you read in Leviticus chapter 15, you probably get a better sense of her social situation. But it struck me that to be bleeding continually is to be slowly dying. If you're bleeding and it won't stop, it's just a matter of time. And maybe it'll be gradual, but at some point, the slow leak of life is going to end in death. So really, these are two variations on Christ's confrontation with death, it seems to me. Notice that it's just the fringe of his garments that heals. To be suffering for so long under the physicians who were utterly helpless to stop it, this healing is almost incidental. Now, it's clearly her faith which saves her. That's what Christ says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. But Matthew and the other writers go out of their way to say that for whatever reason, the fringe of the garment comes to the fore. The fringe will come up at a number of different points, and you can read about the tassels that the Lord instructed his people to make on the end of their outer garments. They would have been made of blue, and they would have been a reminder for the wearer to obey God's commandments. I don't think it's too fanciful to see a picture of salvation in this. A weak faith taking hold of Christ and his righteousness. And this is salvation. In fact, Matthew calls it salvation. ESV translates it as well. If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. It's really, if I only touch his garment, I will be saved. And then Jesus responds, take heart, daughter, your faith has saved you. It's the only time Matthew uses this verb of uh, healing like this. And the reason is it, it seems to be such a plain picture of salvation. 
in the thicker, fuller sense. The Lord Jesus Christ come to fulfill all righteousness, and this not a faux righteousness. He's going to condemn the scribes and the Pharisees for making the tassels long, the fringe of the garment long. It's a faux righteousness. It's a show righteousness. It's a useless righteousness. It's like finding an actor who plays a doctor on TV when you're in need of a doctor. The Lord Jesus Christ's righteousness is no foe righteousness, a righteousness that brings life. For it was by his righteous life that he saved, standing in the stead of sinners, yielding himself, such that the Father was pleased to accept it. This substitutionary atonement. But it seems to me there's another layer to this as well, because if the tassels are a reminder for the individual to obey God's commandments, and we find here Jesus healing the weak and the sick and the dying, the reminder is is that this is God's will. That Christ is here fulfilling the will of the Father in this very act of welcoming the weak, of welcoming the dying, of embracing one who otherwise needs to be cast out according to the law. According to the law, this one was untouchable. According to the gospel, she is embraced and made whole, beloved. Well, does Matthew call this salvation? This is what's taking place for you. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, the slow disease of sin would have ended in a fate worse than death. But the Lord took your sickness upon himself and has given you his life in its stead. No wonder he can dismiss death like it's sleep. He doesn't just dismiss death. He also dismisses the mourners. That's a great line. Go away. And then he grounds the command. For the girl is not dead, but sleeping. He's like, look, you're not necessary. (laughs) Again, we're coming from a feast. We're coming from a teaching that says, if the king is with you, there's no place for sorrow. Wherever he goes, there is joy. Christ alone transforms sorrow into joy. Christ alone dispels the grief, the ache, the reality of death and sin, which is everywhere on display around us, beloved. I pray you know that this has already broken into our lives. We're going to die physically. But what does Christ say? I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who comes to me, though he die, yet shall he live. For the heart of death is sin, beloved, and he's already taking care of sin. The heart of death is separation from God, and he's already brought us near to God, beloved. The deeper reality of dismissing death has taken place. 
in that crisis forgiven, clothed in righteousness, and established at the table of the Father, such that there is peace and joy and life. Oftentimes we think of this big man, this would be great if you would just come and dismiss death. Why isn't it like this? Beloved, it is like this. At the deepest level now of the soul, but one day, all in all. Because the reality which has dawned in our heart, this thrill of hope in which a weary soul and world rejoices as yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Such a great set of lines. Wherever there is faith, hope, and love, resurrection, life has taken place, and it will be brought to full completion on the day of Christ. Thus says the Lord. If we're thinking, oh, the greater miracle is the recitation of this girl, then we're going to be perennially frustrated in this life that continues to know the ache of death in its physical sense. But if we're reminded that the greater miracle is that we're no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, that out of his mercy he has poured out life as he raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Make no mistake, it's something that we enjoy now through the eyes of faith but it's something which has truly dawned, beloved. He doesn't just wish these people well. He doesn't just pat them on the back. He comes to them as the king who makes all things right. And we're reminded here that the dead will rise. That even though death comes... For all of us, it's not the end. Christ uses the picture of sleep here, and that introduces the notion of waking. And the good news is, those who die in the Lord wake in the Lord. The hard news is, those who die outside of the Lord awake apart from the Lord. It ends with verse 26, and the report of this went through all that district. They all heard. Sadly, they didn't all believe. This is going to set up chapter 11, where he actually pronounces woe on all of these regions. He says, my mightiest works were done here, and you didn't believe. You saw, and you didn't believe. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. You saw. You got to see. You got to see that the Lord welcomes the weak. You got to see that the Lord conquers death. You got to see that he's willing to extend his power on behalf of sinners. And you didn't come to him. Why not? There's a sense in which this picture is remarkable and this declaration of this king is full of hope, but it also generates a responsibility upon all hearers. Now you know, beloved, You've heard. You've heard your weak. But you've heard of the king who welcomes the weak. And I stand here not as a private individual, not as 
someone acting on his own initiative, but as a servant of this king, who says he welcomes you. Come to him in faith. Follow him in faith. And trust him with everything you are and everything that you do. For he is good and mighty and faithful. And there is kindness and life to be found nowhere else. Now you know. I pray you come. Join me in prayer. Our God, our Father, we give you thanks at this good word of our King who welcomes and embraces who stands in the stead of sinners who intercedes on our behalf even now who would have us convinced of your fatherly kindness to us Lord that we might be strengthened as the call to follow continues to go forth sanctify us O Lord in your truth your word is truth We ask in Christ's name, amen.